Good morning. Please stand for the call to worship. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of peace be with us all. Alleluia. Our Father, thank you for this time for us to pray and gather together in fellowship and worship for, to you. I ask that you bless this Sunday, uh, bless the week, and keep us safe. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. It is so great to see you as we gather for worship today. There are some uh, forms in the pew rack in front of you, pads there. If you're a guest, we especially want to welcome you and uh, ask you to uh, fill out one of those forms. You can put it in the offering plate in a few moments or leave it in your pew. We'll collect them. If you want to use those to communicate with us, uh, something to pray about, interest in ministries, you can do that as well. Uh, Let's take a moment and uh, share a word of greeting with one another as we uh, continue in worship today. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Austin Kewen, and I am, there we go, the uh, student ministry resident here at Houghton Wesleyan Church. Um, just going to take a little bit of time uh, to introduce myself a little more uh, fully um, and just talk to you guys as the witness of grace for today. Um, so yeah, I, it's nice to, to be back in the area. I was away last year working with a nonprofit down in Lancaster. Um, before that, the previous two years I was here uh, pursuing my master's in music and then four years before, um, previous, I was doing my undergrad here. Um, so it's been a good amount of time in the Houghton community, so it's been nice to come back. Um, yeah, not as a student. Um, so I'm working primarily with students, um, and yeah, just wanted to share a little bit about that and invite you guys into that. I, uh, you know, when, when I came here, I am, okay, kind of a pastoral presence to students on campus, and so I asked, okay, what... What do students need? Um, and I've just been praying about that meeting with a lot of different students. Um, and it's been interesting. I've kind of sensed a resounding theme. Um, and it's been interesting in questioning, okay, what does that mean in terms of us as a church body? Um, I think it can be, it's an interesting time of life when you're a student, and especially at Houghton, when you're like, okay, my, my spiritual kind of community, I'm living with them, um, so what's the point? Um, and yet really... You know, what's the point of coming to church and really seeing a vital role that we play um, because they are just as much a part of the body of Christ as, as anyone um, that, is, that is a part of um, Christ's bride. Um, and so as I've been just praying and thinking about this and meeting with people, um, something I, I, that keeps coming up is just this, this hunger for space um, and rest. Um, you know, it's not necessarily that people are saying, I needed another worship opportunity. I needed another Bible study. I need more chapel because I'm just not learning enough. Um, you know, I get the sense that these students are, are learning great things, and there's a lot of deep things that they're wrestling with. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, they feel pulled in every different direction. Um, and I was reading, I mentioned this a little bit uh, at the potluck last week, if you were there. Um, but when you read the Psalms, you see the word selah. Um, in some translations, it says interlude. Um, and it's a pause and a place to breathe and to kind of soak in what you've read or what you're praying. Um, and I looked, I was reading even this morning through a bunch of the Psalms, and I was, I was looking at what, what came before uh, a lot of these pauses. Um, and often it was times of, you know, expressing deep emotion 
um, of either grief or joy, and then pause. Or declaring who God is um, in faith, or just really, you know, declaring his majesty, and then a pause. Or, um, you know, a prayer where they're, where they're saying, my enemies are here. My enemies are coming in against me, God. What's going on? And just the weight of that. And pausing. Um, and just sensing the need in my own life, I think in, in all of the life of the church, but especially in, um, in the students' lives, um, for just these, a desire and a hunger for places of pause. Um, where they can rest, where they can wait on God, where they can encounter God. Um, and so I just want to challenge each of us um, as the body of Christ, caring for certain parts of our body that are going through different things, um, regardless of who you are. If you're a professor, if you are a um, community member, if you're retired, regardless, we each, just to, to say, what, as, as part of Christ's body, what, what is our role and how can we be agents of rest in these spaces, um, specifically in the lives of students um, if you're a student here, we're really glad you're here, and we hope that this can be a time um, where you can breathe. Um, but even for you to say, how can I be an agent of rest in my day and to people around me? Um, I think there's a real need and a hunger for that, um, and, to, and a desire and a prayer for um, of many people to see God move in those places and move out of those places. Um, so yeah, just as a an encouragement and challenge to each of us to really to seek that and to say, God, what, what does that mean for me? And how is God using each of us um, to do that? So I just wanted to encourage you in that. Um, if you have any specific ideas um, or, you know, feel free to, to contact uh, specifically myself or Paul Shea. Uh, we're working uh, pretty closely with the student body. Uh, we'd love to, to hear from you. Um, yeah, talk to a student today. Offer that today. Um, and just we're excited to see how God uses each of us. Thanks. Our Old Testament reading for today is from 1 Samuel 13, 7 to 14. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gigal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Please stand and sing the doxology as the ushers come forward.
Father, thank you so much for the chance to give you our tithes. I ask that you continue to bless this day, and thank you again for everything that you've done and everything that you continue to do. It is inspiring to think of our almighty king who, though he is great in power and might, is also great in love and mercy. And he desires closeness with us. And that's why we come to him in honesty and confession 
So join me in the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. Almighty God, you have raised Jesus from death to life and crowned him Lord of all. We confess that we have not bowed before him or acknowledged his rule in our lives. We have gone along with the ways of the world and failed to give him glory. Forgive us and raise us from sin that we may be your faithful people, obeying the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules the world and is head of the church, his body. In his name we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for being present with us when we worship in every moment of our lives. And we thank you for inviting us to pray. As we gather today, we represent many burdens and struggles and difficulties for us, for others, for our nation, our world. We especially pray for those who are grieving today. We think of the family of Rick Long, who for many years was the Wesleyan pastor in Olean, who died yesterday of cancer. Your healing grace, comforting presence be with his family. We pray for all who are struggling with illness and pain. We think especially of Bethy Lydic, Phil Maine, Dan Gurley, Florence Tuber, Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, Gus and Louise Princell, Nancy Cole, Peter Lingenfelter, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, Mike Raybuck, Everett, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our minds today. Let your healing grace be present in each one. Father, we think of the other kinds of burdens and concerns that we bring with us today. Anxiety about the future, financial needs, relational struggles, all the things that are part of our life here, we know you are at work, you care, and we give them to you and ask for your help. Father, we, we pray for our church. We thank you for Austin and, and his ministry with us these next few years. Especially, we thank you for the ministry, the privilege we have to, to connect with college students here. Pray that you will help us and them to, to grow in relationship with each other, to serve each other, to love each other, that we might each grow deeper in our faith with you. We pray for churches around us. Today, for the First Baptist Church, uh, the First Day Baptist Church in Richburg, and Pastor Larry Allen. May your blessing be upon this gathering of believers as they worship you and serve you. We think of our nation today. We have watched the scenes unfold this week in Washington. We grieve for all who feel most deeply 
the pain that we heard about and witnessed. We pray that you will give to us compassion and wisdom. Give us the heart of Christ. Father, we also pray that you will you will instill a spirit of civility among the leaders of our nation. That it might inspire civility in our entire nation. And Father, let that spirit be in us. That even if we disagree, the love of Christ is greater than our disagreements. Father, we... We pray for our world. We thank you for your grace and mercy in this world and in your church. We thank you that the DACA New Testament has been completed for the Southeast Asia people group. We pray that your word would bear much fruit. Much fruit. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Nepal. We are excited to hear of a spiritual awakening there. But there are still many struggles. There are, there are the physical struggles of earthquakes and, and disasters. And, and there is a need for a new generation of leaders and biblical training. And Father, do the work that you alone can do. Work powerfully in this nation of people that you dearly love. Father, we think of the world at large and all of the struggles of our world. We pray for the people of Indonesia who have just now endured another tsunami. Hundreds and hundreds of lives lost and destruction. Lord, let your presence and your people be a source of hope. We pray for the people in the Carolinas still recovering from the hurricane and other places here and around the world. We pray for those who are in places of war and violence and ask that you would bring peace. Father, let the presence of your spirit and your people be evident in this world that you created and love and redeemed through your son. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I don't know whether wondrous grace to me has made known.
Please stand for the reading of the New Testament. Our reading today comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him, except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were waiting and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. At this point, the children may be dismissed for Children's Church.
Please be seated. Do you ever sometimes feel like your prayers are going nowhere? That you pray and pray and it seems as though you're, you don't accomplish anything? I suspect if you spend much time at all praying, and if you've had any experience with praying over some time, you have had that sense of wondering What exactly is happening here? I pray and pray and my prayers seem to accomplish nothing. Nothing seems to change. Nothing seems to be any different. It feels as if my prayers mean nothing. I would suspect most of us have had those experiences. And in the moments when we face those kinds of things, when... When we, when we encounter, when we come face to face with feeling as if our prayers are making no difference, we wonder what to do. What do we do in the moments when it feels as if we're going nowhere with our prayers? When it feels as if God is not doing what we would like for him to do and what we think he should do? What do we do? I'm convinced that Saul faces one of those moments in the story we read a few moments ago. The context of this story in 1 Samuel 13 is that uh, Saul has become the first king of Israel. And he controls the army. They've had some battles. They've won some victories. And now, as we get into chapter 13, they are in trouble. The Philistines, their arch enemies, are gathering an army around them, and they are threatening them. And so Saul and Samuel talk, and Samuel says, look, you go there and prepare the people for battle. I'll be there in seven days to offer the sacrifices that that will then be pleasing to God so that he will go with us into battle. And so Saul goes, and he waits. And he waits one day and two days, he waits four days, he waits five days, he waits the seven days that Samuel says, and Samuel doesn't show up. And of course, this is an era where, you know, Samuel couldn't just text him and say, hey, I'll be a few minutes late. And Saul waits, and the seven days come and go, and he says, I've got to do something. The men are deserting me, the army is, is diminished, you know, so much. And I need to do something because if I don't do something, I don't have enough people to fight the Philistines. And if we lose to the Philistines, we will become captives of the Philistines. And I know God doesn't want that. So Samuel says, so Saul says, bring me the sacrifices, and he offers it. And it seems to always be the case, the minute he's done, Samuel arrives and says, what's going on? And Saul says, well, you know, the men were deserting and we were going to lose the battle and you weren't coming. So I took matters into my own hands because we don't want to go fight without sacrificing first. 
And Samuel says, Saul, because of what you've done, the kingdom's going to be taken from you. And we read that and we go, wow, that's a pretty harsh punishment for something that doesn't seem all that wrong. But the context of that is that God set up Israel in a certain way. That the king, Saul being the first king, he ruled the army and he had, he had a lot of power, but not to sacrifice. Only one group of people could offer sacrifices, and that were the priests. And the priests offered the sacrifices, and, and Saul may be the king, but the priests who represent God, the real king, are the only ones who can sacrifice. And Saul knows that. He understands that. He knows it's the wrong thing to do, but he panics. The scripture says he and the people, the soldiers, were afraid, and they panicked. And I have a feeling that there is something in us that when we get to these moments of life where, we, where God is not answering, God is not doing, God is not responding the way we want him to, the temptation for us is to do what Saul does and take matters into our own hands. Sometimes we're thinking, there's no other way to solve this. There is no other way around it. This is the moment, and the moment's going to to. To flee if I don't do something. Like Saul and the men deserting him, we feel like time is slipping away. The, the, the opportune moment is going to escape us. And if we don't do something, nobody is going to do something because it sure seems like God isn't going to do something. And so we take matters into our own hands. What we're really doing is saying, I know we shouldn't, but it gets us to the right end. And one of the subtle temptations of the evil one is to cause us to believe that the end justifies the means. We're getting to the right end. I mean, nobody, God himself, doesn't want Israel slaves to the Philistines. We, we, this is a good thing. We're not moving towards something that's bad. We're moving towards something that's obviously a part of something God would, would affirm. And how we get there is far less important than the fact that we get there. But the scriptures keep telling us that as much as God is is concerned about the end, he is every bit, if not more concerned, about the journey that gets us to the end. And in fact, I wonder if we decide that we are going to make decisions along the journey to get to the end that are contrary to the ways in which God is leading us and the plans of God and the known desires of God, to do that is going to take us to an end that looks very different from what we thought we were going to. And that certainly happens with Saul. It's one of the things I worry about in the, uh, the, the church, particularly in America. We have this mindset that, that we, we want to reach the world, and we should reach the, the world. We want to see people come to Christ, and, and no one, no Christian is going to argue with that, and certainly that's what God wants. And somehow we convince ourselves sometimes that it doesn't matter how we get them into the kingdom, as long as we get them into the kingdom. It doesn't matter how we act or what we do. If people are coming into the kingdom, then it's all good. But maybe it's not. I worry about this in the political realm. And you can, all over the map, doesn't matter what political affiliation you might be thinking about. All over the map, we have this mindset that says we have an end that's good. And it doesn't matter how we get there, as long as we get there. 
But it does matter. It matters greatly. It's significant because the, in, in the kingdom of God, the end never justifies the means. The means is what gets us to the end. And in the moments when we are tempted to not wait on God and to run ahead and to say, if somebody's going to solve this, I'm going to have to do it, we're going to have to do it. God is not acting the way we want him to. In those moments, God is trying to help us understand that waiting is what he wants from us. I'm not talking about idleness. I'm not talking about laziness. Because there are, there are lots of times when God says, go, do, act. But there are also times when God says, stop, wait. You know, one of our favorite phrases, you know, little sayings is, don't just sit there, do something. Maybe there are times where God is saying to us, don't just do something, sit there. Wait for me. Waiting's hard for us because we have wrapped our whole worth often into busyness. That's how we value our lives, that that we're busy, that we have things to do, that we have places to go. That's how we view that life is important so often. And we know, something inside of us knows that it's the wrong way to value life and the wrong way to value our worth. But it's hard because all the culture does that. But something in us says, no, maybe there's something different. Sometimes when I'm driving down 305, you know, going to Cuba, drive by all the Amish homes, there's a little tiny bit of me that's a little bit jealous of them. They don't have to answer emails. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to, to worry about a lot of the, the, the things in life that we worry about. Now, it's a little part of me because I still like light bulbs and I still like electricity and I still like, you know, modern conveniences. So I'm not saying I'm ready to give that up. But, but there's a little part of me that says... You know, the, just the, the ability to escape from some of that sometimes. And maybe that's why God created Sabbath. God created Sabbath because he knows that in our sinful nature, we are going to think that our value and worth is what we do. And Sabbath, we are reminded our value and worth is who we are children of God and to step back from all of the busyness and the distractions and all of those things to step back and to remember who we are and who God is see that's a lot of it it's who God is it's what we how we view God it's fascinating to me that Saul Samuel says to Saul he says you've done a foolish thing And we read that and we go, yeah, that wasn't very smart. But we don't really see the significance of that word, the word fool and all of the cognates of it throughout Scripture. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 begin by saying, only the fool, only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. Another translation says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And there is a sense in which when the word fool is used and foolish is used, there is a sense in which that is behavior that is saying there really isn't God. Or at least not the kind of God that we thought he was. 
And there is a sense in which Saul's actions are declaring God isn't who he says he is. He can't be trusted. His timing is not perfect. He is not good. Because otherwise he'd be handling this and he's not. So I'm going to have to take action. And in a sense, every time when God is saying to us, wait, and we run ahead, we are in essence saying, God isn't really who he says he is. I don't really believe that. To wait is to trust that God is who he says he is. Someone I read this week, someone was talking about how one of the things that sets Yahweh apart from all the gods of all the other nations is the fact that, that you can wait on him because he's always seeking you. And the gods of all the other nations, there is no, there's no at all, they cannot fathom waiting on their God because the gods that they worship are not interested in human beings. The only reason that the only reason that God will do anything good for a human being is if the human being convinces that God, tricks that God, cajoles, begs, pleads enough with that God to get the God's attention and maybe to do something good for us. But Yahweh, you can wait for Yahweh because he's paying attention to us whether we ask him to or not. Yahweh's seeking us whether we seek him or not. Yahweh's pouring out grace upon us whether we admit it or not. Because that's the kind of God he is. And Saul misses that. Saul has lost this image of God and it affects his ability to connect with God. And what you see here really in this story is kind of the why in the road for Saul. And what you find the rest of his life as recorded in 1 Samuel is a, is a widening of his distance from God. And so much so that by the time you get near the end of his life, he's going to visit a witch to find out the mind of God. That's what his prayer life looks like. There is danger in refusing to wait for God. I think that probably one of the reasons we struggle with waiting and its cousin silence is because we're a little bit afraid of what God's going to say to us if we give him a moment to speak to us. At least we worry about that. For about the last eight or ten years, I've been using the, the We Fit. It's a, it's a video exercise program and interactive program. As if you know the We, it's that kind of a of a tool. And uh, and it has a little board on it, a balance board it's called, and it is weighted. And so when you stand on it or do exercises on it, it measures you and it gives you feedback about it. And it, I found it to be a really great exercise program. But one of the things I've noticed is that if I miss three or four days of using it, even if I, I mean, it doesn't know I'm out doing something else, but if I miss three or four days using it, when you turn it on and I click my little picture on the screen, invariably the little voice will come up and say, oh, is that Wes? Oh, I don't recognize you. It's been so long. Where have you been? I'm thinking, who programmed this thing to be so sarcastic? I mean, come on. 
You know, and, and then when you when I stand on it, you know, you do a little body measurement thing, and one of it's the weight, and the little thing comes up and it says, "Ooh, that's overweight." And I like, I know that. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this. I get it. You don't have to rub it into me. You know, and 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 part of me is like, I'm afraid to go back and use it because I don't want to be berated by this machine. You know, this game. And sometimes I think maybe that's how we view God. If I give God a moment to speak to me, he's going to convict me and he's going to challenge me and he's going to judge me. And here's the honest truth. Probably God will. He probably will because he probably is going to put his finger on something in our life and say, you know that thing? You know that thing right there? Let's get rid of that because it's killing you. You know that relationship that is unhealthy for you? We need to do something about that because... It's harming you. That attitude that you have, we need to deal with that attitude because it is leading you down a path to bitterness and destructiveness. And I don't want that for you. Any challenges God ever makes to us are always in our best interest. And the silence and the waiting that we do for God in his presence, yes, there probably is going to be some conviction, but it is always to make us better and to give us life and joy. Because that's always God's intent. And the struggle of waiting is believing that that's true. Do we believe that if we wait we are going to experience, probably in some deeper ways, the will of God. In many ways, this story leads us to the New Testament uh, prayer that, that uh, Jesus gives us the model for prayer. We prayed a few moments ago. And the line that says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the waiting prayer is, an, is embracing the will of God. And we know we can embrace it because as Paul writes to the Romans, God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. It's good. It's pleasing. It's perfect. We can trust him. But in the middle of the difficulties of life, in the struggles of life, we wrestle with that. Jairus wrestles with that in the New Testament story we read. Jesus is on his way to heal his daughter, and this woman interrupts him. And Jesus, instead of saying, oh, I'm glad you're healed, I've got things to do, stops and has a conversation with this woman. And the whole time, I am certain, Jairus is tapping his foot saying, what in the world are you doing, Jesus? My daughter is dying. Come on. But Jesus just keeps talking. Just keeps dealing with this woman. And it takes long enough that he, when he's done, here come the messengers to Jairus saying, Don't worry about it. She's dead. And Jairus has to be saying, Lord, really? And Jesus says, just hang on. I've got this. My timing is perfect. And instead of Jesus healing a sick girl, he raises a dead girl to new life. You think that didn't do something for the faith of the people and that family and the community? God's will is good, pleasing, 
perfect. And God's design for us, as Irenaeus said, is that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And that's what God created us to be, fully alive. To know the joy of abundant life. But the only way to be fully alive is to be fully engaged with God. And the only way we're ever going to be fully engaged with God is to learn to trust Him. And the most profound way and means of trusting Him is to wait for Him. And if we can see waiting as the means of getting us to abundant life, to intimacy with God, maybe it will change how we think about waiting prayer. I'm not saying that this is the only way to pray. There are lots of ways to pray. There are lots of dynamics to prayer, all of them vital and all of them important. But it seems to me that there is something foundational about this kind of praying. Because it is about nothing but trusting God. It's about nothing but believing that God is who he says he is. That God is good. That his timing is perfect. That his ways to us are love. And that his desires for us are abundant life. And ultimately, this is about relationship. And I'm convinced that sometimes, sometimes we are placed in a position to wait because it teaches us that God really is good, that His timing really is perfect, and that His designs for us really are abundant life. We can trust him. And if we get to the end of our days and we don't see our prayers answered the way we want to, we can trust him. And if we wait three days and God does it, we can trust him. The bottom line is God is good. His timing is perfect. And we can trust him. I'd like for us to take two minutes this morning of silence. Silence is hard for us. I could feel you getting a little bit uncomfortable with me when I started and just stood here looking at you. Silence is hard. And two minutes is going to seem like a long time, but I'd like for us to practice what we're talking about today. And to take just two minutes to wait on God, to listen to God. You may hear nothing from God, but you're there and you're waiting. Whatever he might say to you, hear it as a word of grace.
we can trust you. And that any waiting we do for you is going to lead us to your good, pleasing, perfect will. Give us grace to see you as you are. In the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.
Receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.